Good evening. Good evening. Scripture reading this evening is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, thank you for blessing us. Thank you for helping us in all of our endeavors to bring glory to you, and especially when it comes to imitating Jesus in our life. We, we want to do this not only because it brings glory to you and a blessing to us, but it blesses the community around us. Our, our world, Father, and you know this more deeply than we do, needs to, to see a, a different kind of human being that has not only a, a buoyancy and a poise and a strength and a courage when it comes to trouble and to pain and to grief, but a person of, of beauty and of love and of grace when it comes to relationships, and not just relationships, but when there are disagreements about profound truths about what makes this world what it is. And so we pray that you will give us not just wisdom and knowledge, but that you will give us, bless us with discernment. And in that discernment, Father, that, uh, that there will be changes made in the way that we live, in the way that, that we apply truths to our hearts and to our minds and, and to our lives. We, we do, Father, want to follow in the steps of Jesus. And so it's to this end that we ask you to give us eyes that see and ears that hear this text in a, in a, in a way, Father, that we understand it more profoundly and even differently and see how important its words are to, to our lives as the disciples of your Son. And to this end, Father, it is in his name that we pray it to be true. Amen. I, I um, have, have really thought for a long time that one of the most important things that the church can do, not just in North America, but anywhere in the world and all over the world, is, is for uh, the, the, the concept of discipleship to become so robust and to become so dynamic that the, the power of a discipled life, a life that is emulating and imitating the life of Christ becomes so powerful that it begins to draw people to that life even though they may not have a clue as to why and how that life is formed. There's, there's, there's something more to Christianity, and I think we sense this, and I think that we know it down in the bottom of our shoes, that there, there's more to our faith and there is more to Christianity than just truths. That the call of Christ is not just to return to God 
but to return to the kind of human being that we were always created, that God always intended for us to be, that we were always intended through creation to be. The, the healed relationship with God, the healed relationships with people, our own healed hearts, our, our own healed minds, and the ways that we think and the ways that we respond, where we, place, where we place our affections in life, all of that is incredibly important. And one of the reasons I, I say all of this as, as a bit of a preamble to what we're going to uh, think about tonight is that if you really want to see how profoundly a truth is embedded in someone's life, don't listen to what they say, watch how they live. It's something that my dad always impressed upon my brothers and me. And that a truth is a truth is a truth is a truth until it changes the way that you live and it becomes something observable in the way that you act, the way that you respond, your value system. You can tell what a man believes by watching how he behaves. Now think just for a moment what we've, the, the ground that we've already covered in Colossians. In, in Colossians, Paul has gone to great lengths, especially in these first two chapters of this letter, to talk about and to write about and to bring to the forefront of our thinking the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is all-sufficient, that He is supreme, that He is the fullness of God, that He is above all things, that He is the creator of all things. Think about all of those wonderful truths that he talked about, especially beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1. Now, discipleship is the degree you're willing to live out the implications of those truths. To live a life in which Christ is all-sufficient. That He is supreme, the supreme value in the universe to you. That in Him is not just, is not just a, a, a body, but the fullness of God. That He's not just somebody that we can touch, as John would say at the beginning of the Johannine epistles at the end of the New Testament, but that He is above all things. The Creator of all things. So let's listen once again to what it is that Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, since all of these things are true, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Two little fantastic phrases right there. The first is Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Just because Paul is beginning to turn his thoughts to some very practical matters in the book of Colossians, that does not mean that he has forgotten about the problematic understanding of Jesus in Colossae with all of those false teachers coming in and trying to diminish and to dethrone Jesus from his rightful place. To say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of Yahweh is to confront these teachers and their philosophy once again as he gets into these very practical matters about how we as disciples of Jesus live. Christ sits at the right hand of God. And so how can you find anyone who can bring you nearer to God than the one who sits next to God in glory? But then the second phrase, you have been raised with Christ. Typically, when we hear those words, we think immediately of the resurrection. I think he's thinking of something more than the resurrection. 
I think he's also thinking about the ascension of Christ into the very presence of God where he is seated now next to God at his right hand. And what he says is that we have been raised with Christ. Now again, this is a very critical truth. He has already said that we have Christ in this life back in chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, Christ is in you. Now here is something that will blow your mind when you think about it, is that Christ is with you in your world and you are with Christ in his world. With that in mind, we ask the question, as disciples of Jesus, have we forgotten where we live? The answer to that question, I think, is incredibly important to consider because where you live, uh, where you live determines how you live. Where you live, understanding your location and your position, is going to determine how you live. The ethical call of the New Testament is this. Live the life that reflects your identity in Christ. That is the ethical call of the New Testament. You live a life that reflects the things that Christ has already done for you. The fact that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. Live a life that reflects your identity in Christ. Most of the time, though, we get it backwards. We think that if you do this or you don't do that, that's how you get into heaven. No, the citizenship in heaven is a gift of God's grace. Paul says your identity is in heaven already with God, so why do you not live like it, act like you're you're from heaven? Your life should look like one of those whose destiny is in God's presence. And so in these three or four short verses, there are three sort of ethic behavior-changing principles. The first one is you always have to remember your position and location. Notice all of the past tenses in the text that that Tim read and I just read a minute ago. He says you have been raised, you have died, your life is hidden with Christ and God. He's using the language, I believe, of baptism. Do you remember what Paul had written earlier in chapter 2? He says, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead, and he goes on. But here's the point. He says, God has put you in Christ, and everything that has happened to Christ has happened to you. Christ died, you died. Christ was buried, you were buried. Christ was raised, you were raised. Christ was seated at the right hand of God, and the question is, where are you seated then? He says the same sort of thing in Ephesians. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then you go to chapter 2 and verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are all... In in a manner of speaking, we are all moving towards God's heaven, but in another sense, we're already there. Practically speaking, we are still here, but positionally, we are already there. You don't have to scratch, you don't have to crawl, you don't have to grovel to get into heaven. You're already there if you are in Christ. That's the importance of that that prepositional phrase, in Christ. Now, if you believe that, it's going to really change your perspective about sin. For instance, Satan cannot touch you because of where you sit. He can shout at you, he can tempt you, he can scream at you, he can entice you to move out of the presence of God. 
but he cannot touch you because you are seated with the Christ. I think in a practical way, even beginning tonight, it will affect the way you pray. We're praying to a God who not only listens to us, but a God who is not all that far away. God will always hear you. God will always be near you. It will also change the confidence in which you go through life and, and think about your salvation. You remember way back in 2006, we, we did a study of the, the, the book of Levitic, Leviticus about 10, going on 11 years ago, and we studied all of the, the objects of the tabernacle. Remember that with Glenn Pemberton? What was the one piece of furniture that you never found in a tabernacle, or the tabernacle? A chair. Why? Because the priest always had something to do when it came to the atonement of sins. There was constant action and constant sacrifices and constant sprinkling of blood that had to be made. But now, Christ is seated. Why? Because salvation has been made complete. So why do you fret over salvation? When the whole reason that Paul is writing these words is to remind us is that we can rest securely in Christ and live out the ramifications of our faith and the truths of the gospel in a bold way. The imagery of being seated next to God who is enthroned in heaven means that the kingdom of, of, of darkness is a defeated kingdom. And if that's true, why not live boldly? Why not live courageously the implications and ramifications of the gospel? We make the mistake of thinking that Christianity begins with walking. It does not. Christianity, the Christian life, begins with sitting. It means to learn who you are in Christ and what Christ has accomplished for you and what it means to be in Christ and Christ in you and for Christ to be seated at the right hand of God. And you learn to live the implications of that then you begin to walk in the right way. You walk like someone who is seated securely in heaven. But the second thing has to do about your sight. That seeing, in a sense, is, is connected to believing. I, I think too many of us think of, of, of our classes and our worship assemblies as, as sort of a, a respite from the real world. That we come and, you know, for a minute or two, we're just, we're away from the real world and real world problems. The problem with that kind of thinking is I think it gets it a little bit backwards. The world of worship and the world where we in fellowship are praying and thinking and worshiping and the study of Scripture, and, and, and that, is, that is the real world. The world that recognizes that God is the creator and changes lives and what he's doing through the gospel and through the gifts of grace. When we leave this place tonight and this fellowship and this praise, this study, this encouragement, this worship, all of these stuff, we are going back into the temporary world. The Bible says that this world will burn up and be replaced with the real world where God is praised. And since then, you have been raised with Christ, then set your hearts on things above. We set our hearts on the things of heaven. Have you ever heard, um, and, and, and maybe they don't say it quite as often as they used to because it's a bit cliche and, and um, uh, sort of uh, uber pithy, 
But have you heard somebody say, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? You ever heard, hear anybody say that? Uh, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That seems to be a contradiction to what Paul is saying and commanding in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So how much this last week have you thought about heaven? We human beings have such a capacity, me included, to be caught up in the ordinary and the mundane and thus to be distracted from the otherworldly. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, as you know, is one of my favorite writers. He has this wonderful little piece out of the screw tape letters that illustrates it well. You'll remember the screw tape letters, fictional work that he wrote around the time of uh, World War II. It involves a collection of letters that a senior level <coughs> by the name of screw tape sends to an apprentice, apprentice devil named Wormwood, instructing him on the art of temptation. And in one of the letters, Uncle Screwtape writes, Remember he, talking about a human being, is not like you a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion, you know how once, uh, uh, you know how you can never really quite overhear what he says to them, that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line for when I said, quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better to come back after lunch and to go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. So many times we are like um, the travelers in the desert who stand in front of the pyramids and the sphinx, and all we find to talk about is the heat of the desert. When you were upset and got angry last week, was it because you had unimportant desires that went unfulfilled? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writing to the church of Corinth says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. I, I want the center of our universe to be the Son of God. Not ordinary things, not things that are temporary, things that are past, but the center of our universe to be the Christ. And one day, the whole world will see what we already know to be true. And then uh, just one last thought. A reminder that uh, your story and my story, all of our stories, are going to end in glory. 
You know, uh, there were some who saw Jesus crucified on the cross. And the only thing that was unusual about it was that it was a cruel way to die. And there were others who looked upon the cross of Jesus with all of its humiliation and nakedness and pain. They looked upon the cross and they saw glory. Do you know what kind of glory we're destined for? He says in the last two verses of the text, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then you also will appear with him in glory. That's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? In Romans chapter 8, Paul would say something like this. Those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You know, very few people are going to recognize that glory that God gives us. They didn't recognize it with Jesus. And so one would wonder why they would recognize ours. But a day is coming when the Son of God is going to be revealed with the sons of God. And the whole world will see that you have been sitting in the heavenlies with Jesus. And they never knew it. Everything changes when you know how the end is going to take place. You're able to live through some things. You're able to suffer through some things and grieve through some things and to courageously walk through some things because you know how it's all going to end. But it, it also, I think, encourages you to make some changes right now in this life. That self-centeredness, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the selfishness, the hatefulness are all things that have got to go when you know where you live. Did your parent ever say to you when you said something or you did something, they said, that's not our family. That's not who we are. That, that egotism, that, uh, that meanness, that, those biases, those, 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 those uh, sometimes overwhelming urges to pride, and self-absorption, those are the kinds of things that have got to go, quite frankly, in every person who considers them a member of the kingdom of God. And it has to go because that's not who we are. You know, a lot of Christians <laughs> were like my brothers and I when we were, we were little. I mean, I don't know how those screen doors ever survived us running in and out. And sometimes, uh, you know, mom would say, you kids need to stay inside or you need to stay outside, but quit running in and out. I think God sort of says the same thing every once in a while. One minute they're in, next minute they're out when he looks at his children and he wants to say to them, you can't live in two worlds. Stay in. You can't live in two worlds and do it well. 
A lot of you have been to Pearl Harbor, and one of the really uh, somber moments is when in Pearl Harbor you're there at the memorial for the Arizona, and when you go there you just recognize this, uh, this horrific fact that there were just a lot of men that died a really cruel and, and painful way on December 7th, 1941. And, you know, I don't know what the distance is. It's probably several hundred yards. You have um, the battleship Missouri. And, and what you have in those two ships, I think, are something significant to ponder from time to time. On, on one ship is where the war began and the death started. And the other is where the war ended and the death stopped. And when you stand there and you see those two ships, one representing death and war and the other one the cessation of hostilities, you begin to say, you know, that the totality of life is right there. Is that there was a war that was waged for your soul and won. And now that war has ended because of where you are with Christ. And we live... We live a life that represents the cessation of war between God and human beings because through Christ, that relationship has been healed. And I think, you know, going back to what I was saying at the very beginning, you know, a lot of the criticism that gets lobbed like mortar shells at Christianity and at disciples of Jesus from time to time, much of it is, is probably facetious, but a lot of it, perhaps very, very true. I think that when people begin to live out the implications of the fact that they're no longer at war with God, but they have been given life, and not just a life, but a life that is going to end in glory, and that that life in glory is unimaginable, and that life in glory is more than the word beauty can describe. And the fellowship, and not just with God and with the Christ, but with other believers is, is, going to, is so beautiful and it's so abundantly full of joy that it just bursts at the seams that when we realize that truth, we begin to make those changes in our life that reflect those truths and that they have become deeply embedded in the way that we not only see ourselves and see the, each other and the way that we see God, but it just becomes the way that we see the world and the world sees us. Brandon's going to lead us in a song right now. And uh, perhaps there are um, some folks here tonight that have never realized that there is the opportunity for them to be in Christ and Christ in them. For all of the blessings that God wishes to bestow on people to be theirs, to possess them and to experience them in such a way that blows your mind. And if you're interested in that tonight, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front who would love the opportunity to talk with you about how you become one with Christ and Christ with you. And there might be some others, though, that might need the prayers of our congregation, this opportunity right now. This invitation is for you to come down and to talk to our shepherds about things that we might pray and encourage you in. And it's also an opportunity, an invitation for us 
to praise God for the greatness of the glory that he bestows on us. Let's stand and sing.